Good morning. Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, good to be here. My name is Nathan Brown, and I'm one of the leaders here. Uh, Pastor Andrew is away in America for the next couple weeks. I'm just going to put this over here. I feel like claustrophobic. I just feel like everything's around me right now. Um, so I'll be, uh, since and, uh, Pastor Andrew's gone, I'll be handling the pulpit today. Um, if you haven't been aware, our family has actually been missing for a while. Uh, we've been in the States. Uh, we uh, have, uh, we spent July and August in the States, basically going back home, connecting with our supporters um, and our partners and trying to raise some additional funds for us. We have uh, visas that are going to be uh, needing to be renewed uh, in the next few months, and so we wanted to go home and raise funds for that. And so uh, for, for those of you who aren't aware, I think most of us are, uh, our family moved here from the States a couple years ago, um, and our desire is to plant a church in the nationalist community of West Belfast, um, specifically in Andytown. And so um, just want to give you a brief update of kind of our trip back in the States, just so you know what's been going on with us. Um, so as I mentioned, that our visas had to be renewed, um, and that's fairly expensive if you're not... Uh, specifically for our visas, for our family, it's about 10,000 pounds uh, for us to, you know, renew our visas. So it's not, it's not backbreaking, but it's not cheap either. Um, so we, those funds had to come from somewhere. So uh, when we came back home uh, to the States, we were preaching. And um, so I was, I was preaching one Sunday at a church. And as I finished preaching, the uh, pastor came up after we after we concluded, prayed for our family and dismissed the congregation. And then he said, hey, uh, I just want to let you know uh, if I can have the board come forward immediately, like right now, I want to talk to you. And so he gathered everyone together and said, listen, um, I want to give Nathan and Emily like a third of what they need for their visas. Um, and we're, you know, that, amazing, right? And uh, the board looked at him and said, we're not going to do that. Like, and the pastor's like, what do you mean you're not going to do that? I'm the pastor. And he's like, no, we're going we're gonna to pay for all of it. We want to pay for their entire visas. And so uh, just incredibly encouraged by that. Um, and now we're kind of getting back in the swing of things. Uh, when we moved to Andytown in, um, in March of this, of this year. And so immediately we began kind of doing a Bible study in our home. And, and we had several people kind of come to faith through that. And people were attending uh, that. And uh, we... We're building all this momentum, and then we're leaving for months at a time to go back to the States. Um, and so we've returned. Kind of things are getting back into their regular routine and rhythm. Uh, we've been starting. One of, the, one of the things we decided to do was going to be um, we're trying to reach a community that has uh, a little bit of, I mean, a little bit of uh, intimidation by opening up a Bible and, and having these deep conversations about, about Scripture and that sort of thing. And so we uh, decided that we were going to do something we're going to try different things to see what would work, and so we're going to, we're going to watch The Chosen together um, and just kind of watch that together, ask me to read the Bible um, after that, and just kind of ask some questions and uh, just give us an opportunity to hopefully connect with other people in the community. So if you will, just continue to please pray for us and, and uh, pray for our team, uh, pray for opportunities to share the gospel with our friends and our neighbors, people in our neighborhood. Um, so if you'll do that, I'd appreciate that. Um, this morning, uh, we're, we're looking at this passage from the book of Daniel, chapter 3, and it's probably one that many of us are probably familiar with. If you grew up with an, an, an unhealthy dose of uh, the Veggie Tales, you might remember this as Rack, Shack, and Benny, uh, that story. 
this, uh, so today we're going to look at specifically the pressure that we feel um, to act in ways that are sometimes contrary to the ways in which God wants his people to live. So we're going to be looking at that, that pressure that you may experience. And so there's actually, I've, I've got that creek here, and that is driving me nuts too. So I'm going to be off-center. Just work with me, guys. Um, there's actually a bit of backstory here in the book of Daniel. So I'm going to give you that just to, just to kind of help set up where we're at today. So hundreds of years prior to this, the Hebrews were released from slavery in Egypt by the truly the miraculous hand of God. And as they made their way into the promised land, into Israel, God warned them in Deuteronomy 4 that if they moved into this new land and began to worship the other gods of the foreign nations that are surrounding, uh, the pagan gods of the other nations that surrounded them, that after a period of time that God was going to send them off as exiles Essentially, if you want to worship these gods, go at it. I'll, let, I'll, I'll actually give you a front row seat. You can sit directly into, uh, into the neighborhoods and communities in which these gods live. So basically, he kind of said, hey, if you continue to worship these gods, this is your future. Exile is your promised reward. And so that's exactly what happens. We see that after several centuries, the Jewish people, they kind of go back and forth. They, they're faithful to God. They serve him for decades, for, for, for years, and then they start to worship these other foreign pagan gods made of stone, made of wood. And finally, God had kind of reached the point of his patience. And around 600 BC, there's a king over Judah named uh, Yehoiakim. It looks like Jehoiakim. And when he, we'll get to this in uh, Daniel 1, 1 through 2. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Yehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And I want you to notice verse 2 there. It says, And the Lord gave the king of Judah into his hand. The Lord gave the king of Judah into his hand. Jerusalem fell not because the Israelites were weak or the Babylonians were strong. Jerusalem fell because God is going to use one of their own enemies, King Nebuchadnezzar, to, to be the discipline that they needed. And we're going to see this take place throughout. The God is the determiner of history. It's not strong armies or, or the best weaponry or even the best economies. It is God who determines history. And so the Jewish people um, here, they're, they're not, um, you'll note that they're not destroyed. They're not eradicated when King Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He doesn't just, uh, you know, kill them all. Instead, what they decide to do, the norm at that time uh, for, for military history, for people in that time, was what they would do, they would get these people who were ethnically different, and they would try to get them assimilated into their culture. And so they'll take this, you know, 100,000 people, 500,000 people, and instead of putting them all in one lump area of their nation, what they would do, they would get them into small groups, 100 people here, 1,000 people here, and they would spread them all across their empire. And they would do that for a few reasons. They would do that so that they would never, uh, because if they were all together in a big mass of people, they would never assimilate. They would never marry, you know, intermarry. They would keep their own religion. They would keep their own practices. Things would never change. And also, if you have a big group of people at the first sign of weakness, they're going to be rebelling. They're going to be causing issues. They're going to fight against your country to try to get back to their homeland. 
And so this was a norm that they would get all these people, divide them up best they could, get them in small little clusters all over their empire so that they may, over a generation, two generations, three generations, be a Babylonian. And so that's their plan. So, they get the, so they're doing this today. So when we get to this passage today, the Babylonians have done that. They've taken the people, they've divided them up, and um, their, their desire is that they're going to lose their traditions. They're going to lose their way that they're going to accept the norms of the dominant culture surrounding them. That's their hope. And in Daniel 1, we learn that in the Babylonians have divided up these people all over their empire, and specifically there's four men that the book of Daniel names that God is going to use specifically. They're highly intelligent, they're, they're very capable, they're competent. It's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And God, in his providence, places these men in positions of authority and prominence in the kingdom of Babylon. And so when we get into Daniel chapter 2, we're going to see these men continue to rise up the bureaucratic ladder of Babylon. Daniel's going to become the chief prefect of the the empire, and three men, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are going to be appointed over the affairs over all of Babylon which isn't a bad gig considering that they were just removed forcefully from their homes just a few years prior. So God specifically is, is, is interweaving the story, putting these men in a position of power. And so when we get to Daniel chapter 3, where we're at today, King, Nebuchadne- King Nebuchadnezzar had made the decision that he's going to erect this, this giant statue. You know, it, it's, in a, it's in a flat plain. It's going to be very noticeable. It's a little bit smaller than the uh, kind of the Albert... Uh, clock tower in town. And so here you have King Nebuchadnezzar. He's building this, this, this massive thing. And up to this point, he's, he's really only experienced nothing but unlimited success. Uh, you you kind of know those people who have lived their lives and have never, have, have had just a lot of success and very little suffering. Like they're just miserable people. They're proud. They're arrogant. They're full of themselves. And the people around them kind of, kind of, pour into that as well. That's King Nebuchadnezzar. He's had nothing but success. He's never had a bad day. Everything is going well for him. And when we get to this passage, uh, what is this statue? Commentators are kind of split. Is it, uh, is it a statue that is King Nebuchadnezzar? Is it uh, one of the gods, um, maybe the Babylonian god Marduk? Um, uh, you know, you look at these different things, and so commentators are split on what that is. But when we look at verses 4 through 6, this is what this says. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the orchestra, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. So you can assume when we read these verses there's, there's probably several hundred people that have, that have shown up that are here for the unveiling of this, this statue. They don't really know what's being asked of them. They don't really know what they're getting into beforehand. And so they show up, um, and the king is very clear. You, if, you, if you refuse to bow down, you're going to die. You're going to be thrown into one of the worst deaths I would imagine imaginable, which would be thrown into a fire. Um. And so when we get to this, we, we see, you know, there, there's also this underlying belief system that spirituality and warfare kind of went hand in hand together. Um, because the gods, in, in the viewpoint of the world at that time, 
was that gods were tribal. And what I mean by this is um, if, let's say, France were to invade Germany, I mean, they'd probably retreat, but if, if they were to invade Germany and be successful, then the French would say, ah, the German gods, they're weak. The French gods are strong. And so that's exactly kind of what's happening here um, in the viewpoint. The Babylonians, um, they believe that their gods, they're the strong gods. And the, the gods of Jerusalem, the gods of the Hebrews, and all the other nations that they have conquered, they're all weak or dead or silent. Their gods are the most supreme because they have the support of the gods, apparently, on their side because they keep winning. And so we look and see what happens in verse 7. It says this, Therefore, as soon as the people heard the sound of the orchestra, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the king here, he's pushing, uh, we're going to show how united and how unified we are, right? We're gonna, we're, I'm going to force you to show how unified we are, right? He's going to force them to do this, essentially. Cue music, and the next thing you know, everyone's faces are in the dirt, their butts are in the air. You see all this happening, and you see these men in the corner, these three men, and they've been warned, bow and worship or be slaughtered. And in unity with one another, they refuse. And then we get ahead to verse 13 through uh, 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So again, you, you kind of see that, that tribal God understanding. Who is the God who's going to deliver you out of my hands? I'm the one with, with true power, he's saying. So the king, again, threatens them with death. You know, just in case you didn't understand the assignment... Again, I'm just going to let you know, if you don't bow down, you're going to burn to death. Maybe it was lost in translation. I'm going to make it very clear for you. And what is their response? You see that in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, they're saying, this isn't even up for debate. We're not even going to discuss it among ourselves. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, in verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These men are going to refuse. They're, they're not going to bow down and worship this statue. I mean, how is this a god? This is, it's made of, out of gold. It's made out of metal, probably some wood, probably some... You know, why would I worship and dedicate my life to, to this thing, right? And they count the cost, and they're willing to lose both their place of prominence in the kingdom, but also suffer one of the worst deaths imaginable. And we should ask ourselves, what would cause them to do that? Would I do that? Would I do that? Would I act in such an honorable way? 
so there's several things I think that we can learn from this, this section of Scripture today. Um, start out with this. In Ephesians 6.12, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Uh, I believe I'll, I would even take this a little bit further. We, we don't just struggle against the systems of power, but we also fight against the system of pressure as well. These men faced a lot of uh, pressure from their government, from their king. But I also want us to see that they experienced a lot of pressure from the rest of their neighbors and their co-workers as well. If we can be honest with ourselves, there's probably going to be few instances in which our government is going to tell us, hey, I need you to bow down and worship another god. Um, luckily, we don't live in like an authoritarian state. That's not something that we have to ever have to worry about, God willing. Um, but there may be times when we feel, do feel pressured by the government to do things or not to do things. And we need to be very wise with our response as the church when that happens. We need to be very wise when, when we respond to that because um, I won't go into all that today because I don't want to get into COVID, but um, our, we've got to be wise with that. Our greatest struggle, however, is not going to be against our government. It's probably going to be against the pressure we feel to conform to the norms of our workplace and our neighborhood and our culture. The, the pressure of conformity is a bigger threat to your faith than I think most of us can wrap our heads around. The, the, the desire for, just be quiet. Don't, don't, don't rock the boat. Don't mess things up. Things are going well. I would argue that pressure, whether intentionally or unintentionally, from our circle and our network, pl- places more strain on us to conform to the norms and the status quo than anything placed on us by the government. Right, there will be times where we will be afraid to speak up, where our livelihoods might be affected, where our relationships with others might be shaken, our reputations might be questioned. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego face this pressure to bow down and worship another, but they also felt the social pressure to conform into a system that did not match their own. In fact, you look at their very names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, That wasn't really their names. Their true names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Hananiah means a gift of of the Lord. Mishael means who is like God. And Azariah means helped by God. Just when people spoke their names, they were constantly being reminded of who God was. But in Babylon, they're given different names. They're given the names that we most often remember them by, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And those names were dedicated to, to the gods of Babylon. Shadrach is a reference to the moon god. Um, Abednego is a reference to him being a slave to another god. So they're constantly, every time their name is even called, they're being reminded that they're in a new place with different values, a different system. And the expectation is that they're just going to go along with it They're going to lay down everything on behalf of their adopted nation, their king, and their gods. But in this moment, I just want to think of how beneficial it would have been 
as, they, as they're in this moment and they refuse to bow down, they're standing up and they look beside them and they're surrounded by their own brothers in that moment, in that moment of shared resistance. Yes, our, our, our faith is deeply, deeply personal, but I don't think that means it needs to be private. It can be a public witness in which we have. When we refuse to bow down to the cultural demands placed on us, we're walking in obedience and integrity to God the Father. We're also encouraging the Christian community with our perseverance and serve as a witness to the unbelieving world about the very goodness of God all at the same time. If we are Christians, it should be a normal occurrence that our faith is publicly displayed. And that should mean more than just on Sunday mornings when we gather together. It means that in every moment of every single day, our faith should be in front of us. And better yet, our public faith is even sweeter in the context of community. You see these three men working in unison together, bearing witness to one another in their struggle And they're encouraging us onward to faithful service to the true and rightful king. Um, I was thinking this week, can can anyone juggle? I'm not going to make you juggle, but can anyone juggle? Ethan can juggle. Very good. Um, I'm always amazed by jugglers. I can't do that at all. I can do two balls pretty easily. Um, But yeah, three, four, five, not happening. Um, That's kind of the prevailing view of life is that we have all of these, you think of just your life and all the responsibilities that you have. You have chores to do, you have a job to go to, you have relationships that you care about, family, your spiritual life, money, decisions to make, holidays to plan, and you're just like, you just live your day just exhausted because you're just juggling. You're constantly just thinking of the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And faith just kind of becomes a thing that we juggle. Sunday mornings, just kind of a thing that we juggle. And there's this like never-ending cycle of fear that we're going to drop one of these balls, and then, and then because we drop the one, like you can't juggle when one is dropped. You've got to like a mess. And I don't think that's the way our, our lives are just meant to be lived. I think our lives are meant to be lived more like a wheel where we're, the, we're in the spoke. In the very center is our identity in God, And hopefully everything else flows from that. Our identity in Christ in the context of a community that is around us, and we live our lives through that. So money, all of our decisions regarding money and chores and family and relationships, friendships, and everything comes from the context of our identity in Christ. That's my hope is that we would live that way. And when we look at the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they did not separate their lives into compartments like we are prone to do. They don't do that. Their identity is found in God. It's not in their sweet jobs. It's not in the, the power that they, now have, that they now have, that they didn't have before, the money that they had saved up, but it's in God. And the next thing I think that we can pull from this passage um, is that uh, we can reason ourselves out of our public witness that we can reason ourselves out of our public witness. Um, In the last words of Jesus, before he ascended to heaven in Acts 1, he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
Friends, we're called to witness, but even more so, we're called to be his witnesses. And there's, there's a stark difference there because it's not an act he's concerned with. It's a, it's a lifestyle that he is concerned with. And, you know, as I've been reading through this and considering um, everything that's been going on with this, what would I have done in this situation? What would you have done in this situation? Because we can reason different ways in which we don't act faithfully to God. And that would have been okay. You, you see how, the, you know, you think of what the, the, the situation that they find themselves in. They're, they're treated pretty well in the new context of the new kingdom. They were given good jobs. They're, they're in places of leadership, good income. By extension, they have the best of the best. Think of the moment where you're, you're in this, this tension of, God gave me this place of position and authority. Why would I throw that away? Like, you're, you're kind of in this, this, this difficulty, right? You don't know what to do. Where you feel like, well, God gave me this. Why would he want to give, why would this go away? Because he wants me to have this job, apparently. And so we can just reason ourselves out of a public witness. You, you look at these men in the passage, they're facing imminent death. And what's the worst that we face in normal life? We might be ridiculed, we might be distrusted. Very worse, we might be ostracized or rejected. Because our desire is to be well-liked, it's to be embraced by our circle. I mean, let's look again at that pressure that, that I mentioned earlier. They probably felt this pressure even from their own community, right? You look out, all these people are scattered all across the empire, and who has their back? These guys. And if they're gone, what's going to happen to, what's going to, happen to all these Hebrews scattered all across the empire? They're kind of a safety net for them. They're kind of a, a means of hope in the midst of difficulty in the kingdom, and they probably experienced great pressure even within themselves. They might have been saying in their minds for a moment, well, I may bow with my body, but I'm standing in my mind. You know, I, I, this is just a show. This doesn't really mean anything. You know, God knows that. God knows my heart. God will forgive me. Like, and we do that in different small ways. We can play mental gymnastics to justify our decisions. We must be very careful with that. Third thing, we can be sure of God's ability and character even if we aren't assured of his purpose. We can be sure of God's ability and his character even if we aren't assured of his purpose. You know, we look back at this, this passage, verse 16 through 18, and it says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God who is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will still not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Uh, just imagine how much faith it truly takes to live, to reach this point of faith. They knew by refusing to bow down, they were going to face a punishment of death by fire. And they didn't fully know what God was going to do. They didn't know how he was going to respond. And that's where we're at, friends. We as, we as God's people are trying to discern, hopefully, God's will for our lives. We're trying to figure out, what is, what is, God, what are you wanting to do with my life? That should kind of be our, our, our North Star for us. That should be, as we pray, we're praying, God, let your will be done in my life. 
And as, as his followers, our hope is that God is leading and we are following. That's, that's why we're called followers of Jesus. We want to know his will. We want to be faithful to it. Uh, but I think it's very helpful for us to understand the difference between his commanded will and what his circumstantial will is. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, actually, in the next chapter, in Daniel 4, verse 35, he actually kind of explains exactly what his commanded will is. Um, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand. His, his commanded will is absolute. His character and essence hinge on it. He's not changing his mind. There's no gray area on it. We know what God wants from his people, and that's how we should respond. But his circumstantial will is different. We don't know exactly how God is going to act in the moment. So what do I mean by this? I'll, I'll try to explain, like, explain it like this. I think we have the, the slide. Um, we have his commanded will versus his circumstantial will. So in this moment, the Hebrews, the three men, as they're in this moment, they know what God says, that you, will, you shall have no other gods before me. They know exactly what, what God believes about this subject. There's no gray area. They know exactly what he thinks. But his circumstantial will, they don't know. We might be killed. Will I be killed for this? I don't know. But they still, even if they were going to be killed, they said, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this, King. So how does this look like in our lives? We, we know that we are told to pray for our enemies. But in response to that, we still might be rejected. We still might be hated. We're told to be generous. But what does that look like? What does generosity look like? It's different from person to person. We have to be led by the Spirit on that. Pray for healing. We're told to pray for healing. Pray for those who are sick. But will we be healed? Some will, some won't. But we're, we're to pray for healing. And so it's very important as we're living our life to know very clearly what is God's commanded will. So we have to spend time in the Bible to understand what, his, what is his commanded will for us, his people. And then we can see that through the lens in which we see our circumstantial will as we're praying through that. We don't know how God will, we don't know if and how God will deliver us in our difficulties and circumstances and our struggles. Even Christ prayed for another way in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, you know, let, you know if, if, you, if there's another way, let it be so, so I can avoid death on behalf of the people. And yet we look at these men and their bravery, and I want us to consider what the real miracle was. Definitely was a miracle that they were saved in the fire. But to me, the most amazing miracle isn't that. It's that they had enough faith in the first place, to get to that point. His faith, that, faith doesn't predict God's way. It simply holds to his words. And it wasn't an issue of faith. Like you, you, look at, you look at the people that were gathered that day. Every single person gathered had faith in something. They heard the king's words and believed what the king said and bowed down and worshiped. But the three men, they, they knew what their king said and believed him, and refused to bow down and worship this, this statue. Because faith is it's more about the presence of faith. It's actually more about the object of our faith. The object of our faith that matters. The next thing, we can become more consumed with God's deliverance than our obedience. We can become more consu- consumed with God's deliverance than our obedience. 
Like, let's be honest, we, we want it to be easy. We, we have enough difficulty and drama and pain in our lives. We just want our lives to be easy. Every single, wants, every single one of us wants an uncomplicated day. Like, we wish we could live on holiday forever, right? There would just be easy sailing. And so because of that, we're often more concerned with God delivering me from the difficulty that we're facing than actually us being obedient in the midst of that difficulty. God, save me from this, we'll we'll say to ourselves. And these three men, they accepted their punishment. We look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against them. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bide them, to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown in the fiery furnace. And because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. If we must disobey, we must be willing to accept the temporary consequences of that decision. We see this in Acts 5. We see the disciples, um, the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and they go to the temple, and they just start proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done. They're told to stop. They continue. They're arrested. They're beat up. They're flogged. They go to jail. They're released by an angel. And what do they do? They go back to preaching. They go back to going back to the temple. Do we have that same willingness to be faithful and allegiant and bold in our witness? Um, I was thinking of kind of some people in my life who have lived this adversity. Um, There was a young man who was, um, so we lived in New Orleans before we moved here. And um, there was a man who, who moved to the city to help be a part of the church plant that we were starting and he worked in a, in a techie job, and uh, it was a retail uh, tech store. And so everything was going really well. He was, he was getting promoted. Things were happening for him. And he only had one day off the entire week, and that was on Sundays. And uh, he wanted to, that day off because, I mean, he moved to the city to be a part of this church plant. And so eventually, um, his supervisor starts scheduling him for Sundays, and so he goes to his supervisor and says, hey, I think there was a mistake. I'm actually, I'm, Sunday's my off day. Like, that's my only day I need off during the week. And uh, his boss said, you know, you're, you're doing really well, and you've got a really great chance of getting promoted. Um, I, we need you. We're kind of short on those days, so we re- really do need you to work on, on Sundays. And he said, you know, I, I, I want to help in any way I can. Like, I'll, 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 I'll cover shifts. I'll do whatever I can to help you, but I can't work on Sundays. It's just that's, I need a day off. And that's the day I've chosen, and I need, I need you to respect kind of that boundary. And so his boss uh, just basically ignored him, continued to schedule him on Sundays. And so he started to uh, trade shifts with people. He'd work doubles so that he could be off on Sunday. And eventually his supervisor caught up with what he was doing and cut his hours so severely that he was not able to sustain his income with that employer anymore. And so he had to leave his job because of that adversity, that faithful witness. I think of my wife, uh, Emily. Um, In New Orleans, she used to work at uh, a bank. She worked in a bank for over a decade. Um, And uh, the the bank, there was a woman who, uh, she was was an Indian lady, Hindu, who uh, was her coworker, 
And Emily was able to share her faith with this lady who was going through a lot of difficulty relationally with her family. And Emily, Emily was able to lead her to the Lord, actually, this lady. And so uh, this lady, after becoming a brand new believer, she's struggling. She goes to Emily to pray for her. And so Emily has an office. Um, so she's, she's you know, doing well at the bank. And, and uh, so the, they, she shuts the door. And they, there's a moment where they pray together. And her supervisor sees what's happening and says, hey, you can pray anytime you want to, but you're not going to do that at our office. Like, we're not doing that. And Emily told her, like, listen, like, I understand that, but if somebody ever comes to me, whether it be uh, a client or a coworker or anyone, I'm going to pray for them if they want me to pray for them. And I'm, I'm sorry, not, I'm trying to respect, you know, what you're saying. There wasn't anyone in the lobby. Like, I wasn't, there wasn't anyone waiting on me. Um, so I understand what you're saying, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. If, if someone needs me for prayer, I'm going to pray for them. And so Emily was written up and continued to pray for the coworker. She was never fired, but she also was never promoted. She was never, you know, she never advanced in the bank, even though she was definitely skilled and gifted to do that. So it must be wise to be a faithful witness. And we have to kind of almost pre-decide what we're going to do in the moment. Because as, as Christ fathers, we never really know where our faith is going to take, take us. The three men in the passage, they certainly didn't know what their, how their faith was going to take them to the next thing. And lastly, I just want us to look um, at one last point, and that's this, that we can trust in God's desire for our deliverance. Verse 24, it says this, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to him, True, O king. He, he answered and said, But I see four men, they're unbound, they're walking in the midst of the fire, they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. I love, I love this verse here. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Just, that's, I love that. That's even referenced. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Uh, friends, I, I'm just taken back by the beauty of actually the gospel in this moment. Because God desired from the beginning of creation that his people would enjoy that beauty and walk before him and worship God alone. However, man fell, sin entered their lives. Sin changed our affections, our desires to worshiping God alone, to worshiping his creation. So we desired control, we desired the things that, that God had. And so in our sinful nature, we defy the king, the true king, and we deserve to be punished in the fire, into hell. But those who place their faith in Jesus, the Son of God, we're set free. 
You see this in the, the, the passage of the three men. They went into the fire bound, and the fourth man released them from their, from their binds. Romans 6.20 says that we are bound to our sins, and it's only because of Jesus that we are set free. Jesus says to us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that we're only able to be saved from the coming wrath that our sins deserve through him. And that we're only able to be reconciled to God through him. Um, one of my favorite musicians, Johnny Cash, um, he, sings, he actually wrote a song about these three men. And in the song, the, the chorus is, they wouldn't, ba- they wouldn't bend, they wouldn't bow, they wouldn't burn. They wouldn't bend, they wouldn't bow, they wouldn't burn. Um, friends, that fourth man was Jesus. I totally believe that. But I do want you to know, Jesus didn't stop the fire from happening. He could have. He could have just quenched it, put it out. But when the fire was all around them, seven times harder than it should have been, That's where Jesus was. Christ didn't keep them out of the furnace, but he found them in the midst of it. And there will be times when difficulty and dangers and distress will overwhelm you, but in the loneliness of the moment, in the betrayal that may break your heart into, in the loss and grief that you're experiencing, That's actually where he shows himself, that fourth man. And Jesus has a knack, an expertise, if you will, to to show up in difficulty. He doesn't just keep us in the midst of the fire, but also in the waters and in the floods, the operating rooms, in the funeral parlors, and the empty houses, when our businesses burn down. <laughs> Tim got on to me for preaching on this this week. The fourth man is present with his people. We can trust in God's deliverance for his people. He will deliver his people. But we will oftentimes have to go through the fire to experience that and see the beauty of his salvation for us. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, I just thank you that um, how much this passage has challenged me, my witness, um, I am prone to be quiet and reserved and shy. And you've called us to be faithful. I pray that you would help us to be faithful um, in the midst of challenging moments where we may reason ourselves out of the public witness that you've asked us to be a part of. I've, I've been thinking about all the, um, what would have happened to these men, God, if um, They wouldn't have been able to experience the miracle if they had not in that moment. And how many times have I missed out on you because I have been afraid, fearful, 
and concerned with my own well-being rather than yours. Uh, Forgive us, God, when we fail. You're abundant to forgive. But I pray that you would help us to be bold. Bold um, witnesses who are able to proclaim clearly what you have done in our lives. And in the fire, that as we are racked and plagued with all of these circumstances in our life, we don't know what to do. We know that you're there in the midst of our difficulty. You're ever present. You're a friend in need. You're a brother that never leaves our side, Lord. And I thank you for that. I thank you for that.